So once again, four o'clock has come around. So please uh, feel free to uh, ask your questions. If there are any doubts in the room, yes, please. Uh, Namaskar, Pajan. Um, in the morning, we do the morning chanting, uh, homage to the Sangha, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the chanting, it refers to four noble pairs and eight individuals. Just, just four, wonder. The four pairs, the eight kinds of noble yeah. beings. Yes, yes. Just would like to know who they are. Aha, uh -huh. yes. You. You're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> what it refers to is the four stages of enlightenment. Uh, and the for each stage, there is being on the path, and then there is realizing the fruit, the maga and pala. So first stage is sodaban, stream entry. Second stage is sakadagami, is uh, the once returner. The third stage is anagami, uh, non-returner. And fourth stage is arahant. So the four pairs are... Uh, the, those beings who are on the path to Sotapanna and who have realized the fruit of Sotapanna. And the second pair is on those on the path to Sakadagami and those who have realized the fruit of Sakadagami. And the third pair is on the path to Anagami and then having realized the fruit of Anagami. And then the fourth pair is those on the path to Arahantship and who have realized the fruit of Arahantship. So the Sangha, which is the refuge, in the external form is the, uh, those beings who have awakened to Dhamma. So in that respect, uh, the, um, that could include lay people as well as monastics. And not every Sotapanna Anagami is a, is a monastic. So the, the Arya Sangha is uh, those beings who have awakened to those particular levels of reality. Could you please give me some idea about the Buddha image at the back? Oh, I have to ask Mamta. Oh, okay. Asking about the Buddha image, the Buddha image behind us? Yeah, and the posture. The, I think uh, this was specifically. Um, chosen and crafted by Momta, so um, she can explain her choice of the Buddha image and the mudra. I got this from Bulilam. It's a black stone. It's called So the mudra is that of the uh, giving a Dhamma teaching. So the the if it, it it varies from image to image, but you if you look closely, the the Buddha is holding the last finger joint. Sometimes it's just the you know the first finger. Some this one is the the little finger, and so um, my understanding is that where he's so holding that one finger joint, he's saying just like. Uh, when he picked up a handful of leaves from the floor of the forest, what I know is comparable to all the leaves in the forest. What I teach you is just this 
handful of leaves, uh, Dukkha Samudaya uh, Niroda Magga, yeah, the uh, Dukkha, the origin, cessation, and the path leading to the cessation of Dukkha. And similarly, the uh, the holding of the one finger joint is, uh, I, as I was, it was explained to me, was it means it's just this much. That's all you need to know. This is all the information you need, just a little bit, not the whole body, just one finger joint. That's that, that's as much as you need. Just the uh, uh, the these fundamental teachings on the middle way, the four noble truths, and um, the uh, and then as we've been uh, mentioning, and also in the chanting, um, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the Anattalakana Sutta, the these uh, we the reason why we recite these or that we we study these is because they contain so much of that the essential information in that in that one finger joint. Some other monks might explain it differently, but uh, but uh, that's how I understand it to to mean. เป็นอ่านี่เป็นเอ่อคําสอนของพระพุทธเจ้าก็สักนิดเดียวเอ่อความสิ่งที่ที่อ่าสมเด็จสมาสมพุทธเจ้ากรุก็มันกันร่างก
the uh, experience of each moment. Uh, what you have in that, the, the first section, avicca pacea sankara sankara pacea vinyana vinyana pacea namarupa namarupa pacea salayatanang. The, in the, the, the first section, it's describing how when there is a lack of sati, when there's a lack of mindfulness, when there's avicca, then uh, the um, the mind starts to create the subject-object division. So sankara, in this respect, it means it's uh, it means that which is compounded or separate, that which is put together. So um, the uh, that kind of a basic division. So as soon as there's ignorance, then there starts to be a me here and a world there. And then the uh, that conditions, it kind of it conditions vinyana and namarupa together. Again, they're kind of, they're, uh, and in, uh, in a number of teachings, the, there's a, a famous teaching of the Buddha where he says, uh, vinyana and namarupa, they lean on each other like two bundles of reeds. They, they support each other. So it's not like the one you know, you get first vinyana and then namarupa, um, but rather they are mutually supportive. And so that if you can follow that, so they kind of, from sankara, they kind of both arise and then they, they work together. And in actually the most, um, the, the longest discourse about um, the, about dependent origination called the Mahanidana Sutta in the D long discourses, the Diganikaya, when the Buddha is describing the whole process, he traces it back from from uh, from uh, dukkha and and uh, sokaparideva to birth and becoming upadana, the uh, cr uh, clinging, craving, feeling, uh, sense contact, six senses, and then uh, and then he says, and what conditions are six senses? Namarupa. What conditions namarupa? Vinyana. What conditions vinyana? Namarupa. So it turns back upon itself. So in that uh, in that uh, teaching, he doesn't mention sankara and uh, avicca at all. And that's the the the, the kind of the the um, longest discourse about dependent origination. So uh, the um, what you can see that is happening is that as the mind starts to become unmindful, so it switches off, then the sense of a, of a, a, a subject, an experiencer, and, and the world then starts to form. And then it, that gathers strength in Namarupa and Vinyana, kind of leaning on each other. There's a, a, a very um, wise monk from Sri Lanka called uh, Venerable Nyanananda. And he, he says it's like a whirlpool, like a vortex that they that namarupa and vinyana they kind of strengthen each other until uh and it all happens very very quickly but they, they strengthen each other so then the vinyana side of it becomes the the subject like i am experiencing and the namarupa is the five khandas of i am experiencing the world as a me here and a world there and the, the world can also be the inner world of a thought or a a memory as well as a perception of a building or people but that namarupa vinyana 
vortex. So it's kind of setting up the self, other, me, and the world uh, duality. And then the next one on the list is salayatana, the six senses. So that's describing how then the attention latches on to a particular sense, hearing, seeing, feeling, whatever that might be. And then that leads to contact pasa, vedana, tanha, upadana, bhava. So um, in terms of sankhara conditioning vijnana, I say it's more helpful to understand. It's like sankhara conditioning vijnana and namarupa together. And then they kind of work as a sort of uh, combination. They, they lean on each other, the, the two bundles of reeds. And, uh, and in that sutta, the, the bundles of reeds sutta, which is in the connected discourses, the Sangyuta Nikaya, um, the, it's in the Nidana, the connected discourses are about um, uh, 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 about Paticca Samupada, the Nidana Vaga. <laughs> so the, um, on causation, uh, the Buddha says, if you take away the vijnana, then the namarupa collapses. If you take away the namarupa, the vijnana collapses. They they lean on each other. They support each other. They they feed each other. So the, these are areas to kind of look at in your own mind. And I, as I said, it, I spent several years. I mean, not all the time. <laughs> other things going on, but so trying to get a feeling for what these terms meant, and then how it worked together. But I did find in particular. Venerable Nyanananda's description, uh, very, very helpful. And there's a book of his called The Magic of the Mind, uh, where he talks about that uh, in some detail. Thank you. The Nama Rupa Vijnana Vortex. Sounds like a rock band. but uh, Thank you very much. Or a Buddhist rock band. Yes. Um, in physical exercise, um, when we reach our comfort zone, um, when we, we reach what? Our comfort zone, comfort, like you comfort know, zone. Yeah, okay. comfort zone. Um, we lift heavier weights to make the muscles grow bigger. What about meditation? Um, what do one do to further our practice to keep it challenging? Um, sit for longer periods of time. <laughs> uh, go, go on more retreats. Um, Listen to more Dhamma talks. Um, the uh, keep precepts more strictly. All kinds of things. There's many, many ways we can up up uh, up the ante. The Dutanga practices are also available for lay people. Just eating once a day. You can do that. Um, and simplifying uh, simplifying your life with in terms of possessions in terms of engagement with social media, uh, many, 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 many things. So, but the, 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 in terms of classical training, the 13 Dutanga practices are um, ways of um, raising the game, as it were, because they, they focus on things like food, sleep, comfort, and shelter. Very, these are kind of non-conceptual areas of the brain, the kind of reptile brain territory, um, and so they're uh, challenging the the mind's sense of reactivity. So um, I'm not recommending that this is for all lay people, but just they they are there and they are 
helpful standards you can work with. So like uh, the one of the dutangas uh, that, uh, that I, I've practiced in the past is just living on the food that, that's put in your arms bowl as you walk through the village and having, having nothing else during the day. That's, that's your food for the day is whatever lands in your bowl. And when the Sangha members go out on Bindabat um, to the town in, in, uh, in most monasteries, certainly at Amravati, then uh, that's, what, that's the practice they, they keep. So they'll, they'll walk into Berkhamstead or Hemel Hempstead or Tring, and then whatever is put into their bowl by any strangers, it, we don't arrange anything. It's not, there's no kind of schedule, but they're just standing on the street. So that's the food they have for the day. And if, uh, if they get a lot, then they have plenty to eat. If they don't get much, then they don't have much to eat. So um, that challenges one's instinctual relationship to wanting to have a good <laughs> guaranteed food, uh, food supply. Um, so eating just or eating just once a day, uh, either then uh, strictly no, you know no breakfast, no other meals, just eating one time a day. Um, so uh, and then with sleep, um, keeping the practice of not lying down to sleep, so only using three postures: sitting, standing, and walking. So that's interesting. So I did that for about three and a half years. I just found out Ajahn Jayasara did it for four years. So. So we have to compare notes on that. It, the, after a while, no posture is comfortable. Everything aches. And you're always tired. So again, it's, it's uh, not to be torturing yourself. The Buddha very specifically uh, crafted these uh, ascetic practices to be things that weren't destructive, but they challenged those powerful instincts around sleep, food, also um, uh, um, your uh, sense of, of shelter or having your own space. So one of the Dutangas is just living under a tree. So not, not using a building to stay in. Uh, probably difficult to work in lay life. <laughs> but that's why we, uh, when we, we go traveling, we have a glot or a tent and just sort of, uh, have a, a mosquito net hanging from a tree to, uh, or, or a book tent, to, uh, a tent to sleep in. Um, so it's uh, ways of challenging those reptile brain functions around comfort, personal space, food, sleep, all those non-conceptual reactive areas to kind of edge into those. So you, know, you can think creatively how in your own life you can um, challenge that uh, those assumptions about um, what I what I need to have around what I uh, what um is uh taken for granted as being essential and challenging that just uh, in a sensible kind of skillful way um uh, and it's it's powerful because i've known people who are extremely dedicated buddhist practitioners notable buddhist teachers who publish dhamma books <laughs> and then when put in a situation where they're slightly outside their comfort zone like I remember I was at a, a conference in Dharamsala. It was March, uh, so the end of winter, beginning of spring. It's kind of gray and drizzly, cold. And uh, all of the attendees of this conference for this holiness of Dalai Lama, we were staying in this hotel. And then the hotel manager said, I'm sorry, there's no electricity. And then one of the uh, my esteemed fellow Dhamma teachers said, but 
my clothes are all wet. I need to dry my clothes. I, I, need, a, I need a clothes dryer. And then the manager said, sorry, madam, there is no electricity. No, no, you don't understand. I need to dry my clothes. Well, you can hang them up in your room, but the room's cold and damp. That's what's available, madam. And she, I'm not trying to shame her, but she really had a hard time. She was really very distressed because she'd never lived in a situation where you didn't have electricity or you couldn't have dry clothes to put on. And so it was really, I found uh, an, an impactful, like, wow, this person's a, a Dhamma expert and a, an admired published author and much loved teacher, but with just you know, a bit of cold and damp and soggy clothes to wear, then there's uh, no refuge was available at that time. Maybe uh, things have changed since then. I hope so. <laughs> but it was, um, uh, if we are, uh, say, very dedicated to our practice of Dhamma, but we've got very, very clear set of conditions that we keep in place. <laughs> the, the, uh, the way I like it, it's got to be this way. The food has got to be like this. The temperature has to be this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we are making our practice very dependent very fragile and the the purpose of say and spending more time in medita meditation uh listening to more dhamma teachings and, and using like these sort of dutanga standards is to develop an adaptability so our practice is less and less dependent on physical conditions so whether there's a lot of time or a little time you're okay whether you're sick or you're healthy you're okay whether you're comfortable or uncomfortable, you're okay. Whether your clothes are soggy or they're dry, you're okay. If you're on a crowded train or you're by yourself in a Dhamma hall, you're okay. So that, um, I would say, the maturity in the, in the practice manifests as a, a great adaptability, that uh, the, you don't have to have things any particular way in order to be completely at ease. And I, I feel that the, the Lord Buddha was a very good example in this respect. Yeah, he, he was born as a prince. He had a very luxurious um, uh, lifestyle, uh, you know, lifestyle growing up. He had uh, wealthy monarchs who, and rich people who were his supporters, but he still lived as a barefoot monk walking around living on alms food in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh for 45 years. And uh, when there was a famine, then he ate bran. That was what was there, there was to eat. He could have probably magicked a lot of food into being, but he didn't. Uh, he uh, uh, he chose to to live very very simply and adapt to the circumstances as he found them. So that uh, I feel that was uh, that's a, a very wonderful example. And in terms of strengthening our practice, it's not so much um, the depths of samadhi that, that is the sort of key measure. But uh, I would say, personally, that sense of adaptability. You can be alone, you can be with people, you can be hungry, you can be full, you can have very few things, you can have a, an abundance, and all, all good. To be content wherever you are. Exactly. Thank Contented you. and easily satisfied. Sometimes, for some monks, it's more difficult to be content with luxury than it is with simplicity. Some of us are very attached to our simplicity. I like patched robes, and sometimes I've had 
robes with like four layers of patches. I mean, they wanted to take my patched sabong away from me. Like, no, it's mine. My, these are my rags. You're not going to take them away from me. And I realized, oh, this is attachment, <laughs> attachment to my patched rags. So, uh, it a, uh, and uh, many, uh, a number of years ago, I was I was a very uh, ardent ascetic, and I would, I would always, um, I so. It, uh give any any nice things that were given to me i give them away and and so i had a, a, a bit of a a um uh a kind of um overzealous streak shall we say and uh one day at the, at the mealtime in amravati some uh somebody had given lumpur tomato a very rich danish pastry so you know, covered in kind of sugary glaze and cream patissiere and and jam, and it was this kind of very kind of bright, colorful thing. And he put it in the, his bowl lid and he handed it to me, and I immediately sort of took it and passed it on. He said, "No, I want you to have it." And through my mind, I went there. But 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 Longpore, you know, I'm the monk that never has nice, never accepts nice things. And he kind of gave me that look and said, you know, that, that said, "I know." This is for you. <laughs> Eat the pastry, <laughs> so that uh, so sometimes that um, uh, it's not always attachment to comfort and and richness. It can be attachment to simplicity and and um, and that uh, it, it, which is you know, what the mind has latched onto. Thank you. So, any other questions? Yes, over here. Um, I like some advice on uh, teaching uh, children and teenager when they are at the stage where they're forming themselves. And are there any um, key message, you know, for that <laughs> to be the stepping stone for later on in in life? They don't have faith yet at this stage. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, again, you're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I, I'm not an expert. Um, I have spent a certain amount of time um, uh, teaching like uh, family summer camps and visiting schools or uh, working with, with school groups and younger people and so on. Uh, but there are many, many families come to the monasteries and they're always you know, asking about how to raise their children or get their children help their help their children to be interested in Buddha Dhamma and and so on. And uh, over time I've come to the conclusion that it's really by example that uh, we uh, that we teach in the best way. So that if you want to to teach your children uh, Buddhist principles, when things go badly for you and you get upset, how do you handle it? When you when things go well and you get excited, how do you handle it? Uh, when there's uh, good fortune, bad fortune, you know, how do you handle it? And uh, how do you speak about it? How do you hold it within yourself? Uh, and what do you manifest to the the family? So that uh, uh, and particularly younger children, they learn by example. And so if they see that oh oh your mum's really upset. But she's uh, and so she's she's tearful, but she's she's not taking it out on us. <laughs> uh, 
that's good so then they, they they'll they they'll see okay yeah mom's upset but um she's she's being patient with it or that uh they've done something really bad they've broken something or they've told a lie and they're afraid that you're going to get angry with them uh and that uh and then rather than blowing up and getting angry then yeah you approach it in a in a different way that you're still telling them hey, that's uh, it's not good to tell a lie but they see oh my i did something really bad really wrong you know i broke that valuable thing and wow me and mum didn't get angry <coughs> she obviously you know liked that vase that i broke <laughs> it's in pieces but um look at that she didn't just blow up and get angry and, and scold me so these kind of things make a, a big impact and they communicate in ways to some extent much better than verbal explanations it's like a an object lesson and uh so living by example being being a good example i remember a few years ago uh a a a, a a couple of Thai women came to the to Amravati and had their, their children with them. And uh one of one of the mothers said, Oh, can you teach my daughter? She's Bilmar. You know, she's really obstinate. Uh, she is <laughs> she's 15 and she won't she won't do anything I say. Yeah. She's really obstinate. And um and the girl was like <laughs> plainly not particularly happy being talked about in that way. Uh, and uh but uh she uh, but anyway so the mother spoke for a little bit and then the daughter just said turned to her and said well uh, is it any surprise that i'm I, i'm a bit obstinate you know because you're the one that's that's that causes so much difficulty in the family you're out drinking every friday night every saturday night you know what kind of, uh, what kind of example does that set and i said good point so listen to you know listen to her and so so oftentimes when families come and the and it's often the case the parents say, can you straighten out my son or my daughter or you know make them obey me or, or they they're they're not very happy with their studies it's often i'll be giving more attention to the parents and encouraging the the parents and, and giving the same kind of advice that uh, if you want your daughter to be well behaved if you're going out partying every weekend you know you're you're expecting too much uh not that you would but just as an example so then it, and like i was giving the um the example of my own parents how they never argued in front of us they they sort of dealt with family issues without without kind of fighting with each other and uh also everything was very fair so that the, there was equal shares, fair shares for all of us children, the three children, everyone was treated completely equally. And uh, so these kind of things are a, a subtle sort of teaching, but they're very significant. And that they, they do get through in, in a way so, so that you can you can say to your, your kids, like, well, you know, I want such and such. They say, well, you've already had one. And your brother didn't get one yet, so it's really, you know, he should get one first before you have, before you have extra. Isn't that fair? You know, kind of walk them through it, and uh, that kind of um, being a, a, 
uh, as a, a good example, and also uh, giving uh, giving reasons why you're making the choices that, that you are, rather than just taking the the high the high seat, saying it's that way because I say so, and you know you should you should obey me. Like that doesn't usually have a very good effect. The um, uh, in terms of joining in with pujas or meditation, you really have to work it out individually because uh, uh, children will vary and what works in the family home might be very, very different in different places. But I do feel that the main thing is being a good example. So they want to be like mom or dad. You know, they, they, you know, they, they, they admire you. They want to be like you because uh, you're, you're manifesting being a, a, a good-hearted, kind, careful, you know, thoughtful person who's also um, fun to be with. You know? And so that, that uh, I feel, is the, the, the best way of creating the ground for education. Again, I'm not an expert, but uh, I feel that's uh, a, um, these are Im important principles. Also, that um, one of the things that uh, I'm not sure how it here is, in, is here in Thailand, but in some families, the parents can be obsessed with academic achievements and that um, have a lot of that basically that the child's job is to represent the parents and to sort of be a, a, a <laughs> kind of fly the family flag and that, and it's like them as an individual is kind of lost altogether and so that and that can be very challenging because the the value system of the parents can be like you have to be a doctor you have to be a, a you know a, an engineer <coughs> there's no other possibility And that can be very unfair on the children. I remember one family in the States that I knew very well, still know quite well. Uh, I, they lived in Michigan. I was on the West Coast. And so uh, occasionally I'd be in that area giving some talks and retreats and such like. And uh, so the, the mother of this family sort of wanted to sit down with me and say, I'm really concerned about my, my son. Yeah, I think he's... Yeah, we, we, we've taken him to a psychiatrist a few times. He's really got some very, very serious problems. And I thought, oh, you know, just, this is sad to hear, you know, that he's uh, having some difficulties. And then, again, I'm not trying to shame her, but as we talked, and I tried to get a sense of what his difficulties were, his, his great psychological difficulty was that he didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to be a social worker. And I, th and I really wanted... I mean, I had to restrain myself. Like, Are you out of your tiny mind? <laughs> What's wrong with being a social worker? He's a kind guy. He, that's what he's drawn to. What's wrong with being a social worker? That's a great livelihood, very wonderful service. I didn't, because I could, I could see a certain aramana arising. Like, but she was, she was really concerned. Like, but it's, it's terrible. He doesn't want to be a doctor. And I thought, wow, she really means it. It's like, how awful that my, you know, the other two children were already on, in medical school. <laughs> so that, uh, and uh, they, they had a kind of medical, medical family. And I thought, wow. So I tried to sort of ease it around saying, well, you know, he makes his own choices. I don't think he really needs to, I mean, it's up to you, but I don't really think he needs to see a psychiatrist. 
you know, I wouldn't class this as mental illness. I, you know, trying to be polite and sincere, but you know, you make your own medical choices in your own families. It's not up to me as a monk, but like, you know, the, the desire to be a social worker is not a, a mental illness. I would suggest my amateur perspective, but it was the the, the pressure was there from from the, uh, from above. You know, you should be doing this, and there's something wrong with you if you don't. So. Uh, again, people make your own choices. It's up to you. You have your own family dynamics or you know, the businesses and such like. But um, I would suggest uh, letting your children make their own choices. And if they have an inclination towards being a, a social worker or a, a journalist or a, you know, a, an artist rather than a doctor or an engineer, uh, yeah, fine. <laughs> that uh, people have their own um, skills, their own inspiration, and to force children into uh, fulfilling a role that's just a kind of assumption for the parents. Oh, you've got to do this; it's the family business. Or you've got to do this because, you know, what will my, what will our friends think if you don't go to medical school? Like, well, <laughs> again, I could be a bit blasé about that. So, well, who cares what they think? <laughs> But obviously, these people do, and what they, the mysterious they think, can have great power in people's lives. So, again, as a monastic, I don't make people's choices for them. But in terms of education and providing a, an environment for the flourishing of of uh, young children, teenagers, um, uh, giving at least some scope for their own particular interests, their own talents and uh, their their own gifts and that not forcing uh, the, the children into uh, a, a role or to act in, and to follow courses of study and work that according to to your own uh, expectations or how it's gonna how like well again going to my family it didn't occur to me how embarrassing it was for my mother to have to well, my dad said, well, what's your boy up to these days? <laughs> yeah, it didn't really occur to me until much later. Like, oh, yeah, that must have been quite, that must have been quite hard for them. Because <laughs> they're also so proud of you when you're growing up and passing exams and winning prizes and and such like. Oh, my boy, you know, he's, he does this, he does that. He's the captain of the rugby team and you know, so on and so forth. And then suddenly, oh, dear. So that um, a certain adaptability in the parents in terms of expectations, a certain uh, readiness to say, well, it's not what we expected or not what we were uh, thinking of, but well, that's what she wants to do. She's keen to be a journalist. So, okay, so let's find a good journalism school <laughs> and, uh, and support them in that. Ajahn Chiu was a journalist before he was a, a bhikkhu, so I guess that's one of the reasons I'm thinking of that. So I, I hope some of that is helpful. Ajahn Jayasaro is the expert uh, in the educational field. Yeah, please. Yeah. During the early session that you have taught uh, this week, you mentioned about uh, the teaching of Prajan Sumeto about uh, when we first attending the retreat, normally we concentrate. 
only on our breath or on the food steps. It means that we exclude others. And then when the mind comes to the peaceful stage, uh, we should include others as well. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more because I try, but it seemed like, a, is that we are going to do vipassana just to be aware of it and let go or any other meaning behind that? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, good question. Um, so the, the phrase that Lumpur would use is uh, uh, concentration or one-pointed concentration is the point which excludes. So the uh, attention is on a single point and everything else is deliberately excluded. And then the this kind of open awareness is the point which includes. So it's one-pointedness, but the point is very, very big, kind of very, very wide. So that kind of open awareness in and of itself, it's a um, it's part of vipassana practice. Um, but that open awareness doesn't necessarily involve uh, so much of the quality of investigation of pijarana. And an insight practice, vipassana, necessarily involves a degree of investigation, challenging the mind's habits of of attitude, uh, thinking that the the impermanent is permanent, or thinking that that um, what is not self is self, and what is unsatisfactory is satisfactory, and so on. So that the vipassana um, is, in a sense, uh, you're using that wide open spaciousness, the open awareness, and within that space, then there's this particular kind of of uh, reflection, ex- exploration, and challenging habits of mind is is being carried out. That makes sense. Yeah. I recall you mentioned about to include also other that at present at that time. So is that uh, to be aware of what is going on, like uh, any other sound or? And let it just be aware, and then let it go. Yes. So that that, that open awareness is like whatever perceptions take shape for, uh, in, from the inner world, the outer world. So thoughts, emotions, memories, uh, visual forms, sounds that we hear, physical sensations, just the the all of the changes of the experiential field. So you're not, but you're not focusing on any individual object, like a, a person or a tree or a a sound, but the the effort is to uh, sustain a a a, a, a non-specific open awareness. So the awareness isn't latching onto a particular object. And that that takes quite a bit of work because the instinct is to latch onto particular sounds or or shapes or forms or ideas. So that that sustaining that quality of open awareness uh, without Focusing on a particular object, that um, that's part of it. So that's all included. Other people and things are included within that awareness. Thank you. That makes sense? Yeah, this morning I try something like that. And I feel like uh, when you you do that, you feel that you are part of the whole nature. Mm-hmm. You are you not. Are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like uh, you feel it, you yeah. know, you I, I think uh, that is where your awareness is wider. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yes, there's a hand up there. Could you um, define 
um, perception and consciousness more clearly with an example. Um, because earlier you were explaining how Vinyana and Namarupa, they condition each other. Mm -hmm. And I thought uh, Vinyana is sense consciousness and it has like concepts, ideas, thoughts. And I thought Nama, which is name, should be part of Vinyana. So um, I got all confused about, about that. So yeah, could you explain that a little bit? You are you. confused about that which is confusing. So your confusion is quite appropriate. Um, uh, many, many books and doctoral theses have been written on these themes. So uh, the short version is the vinyana that is the third link of the dependent origination is not quite the, the word is not used in quite the same way as vinyana as part of namarupa. So uh, the nama of namarupa includes vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana. So namarupa is a, a, a shorthand way of talking about the five khandas. So it's the same word, vinyana, but it's got slightly different meanings in those two parts of the same process. So uh, it is confusing. That's why I was saying earlier how it's 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 very helpful to get a like a working sense of what all these different terms refer to from your own experience. So, in terms of perception and consciousness uh, of sanya and vinyana. So uh, again, I, I was quoting this dialogue between I think it's between the arahant nun Damadina and her former husband Visaka. And uh, Visaka asks her, feeling, perception, and consciousness, are they separate or are they connected? And she says, feeling, perception, and consciousness, so Vedana, Sanya, and Vinyana, they are conjoined, not disjoined, because that which we feel, we perceive, that which we perceive, we cognize. So you can't entirely separate them out from each other. When the, the, the third of the Buddha's discourses, called the Fire Sermon, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, um, the Buddha uses the model of the six senses and uh, raga, dosa, and moha, passion, uh, aversion, and delusion as a sort of framework for that, that particular teaching. And for each of the six senses, he talks about the, the consciousness associated with each sense. So like the eye, uh, chaku, and then there is chaku vinyana, eye consciousness, and then chaku sampaso, the contact that arises um, uh, based on, on the eye and so on. So there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, mind consciousness. So they're all different kinds of vinyana, chaku vinyana, sota vinyana, gana vinyana, jiva vinyana, kaya vinyana, mano vinyana. So um that the the perceptual process also involves discriminative consciousness that's uh, that's why in that dialogue between Dhammadina and visaka then it's like they're conjoined they're not disjoined you can't really separate them out completely from each other but you know the feeling is not exactly the same as the perception like i was giving the example of water the wetness isn't the same as the flavor or the temperature isn't the same as the viscosity. 
got they're all aspects of the the same water so that um feeling perception and consciousness in, in this respect you can't completely separate them out from each other but they they there's a certain way that they are distinct so i don't know if that clarifies things or makes it more confusing but uh literally i spent several years just trying to to sit with these different um concepts and and i was going to draw little diagrams and with boxes and arrows between them <laughs> trying exactly trying to figure out okay this vinyana how is it connected to that vinyana and and uh, you know and this sankara you know the sankara that's the second one of the dependent origination how is that connected to the sankara that's part of the nama in nama rupa <laughs> so you can really get into a tangle if you're not careful so uh, it's uh, uh, i was uh, um very it was i was very much helped by the way that lumpur Sume, and the other morning i was talking about wise reflection and the use of investigation how over three or four years for the, the winter retreat time in amravati each year Ajahn Sumedha would just talk about dependent origination. And he'd take like one chunk, like Avijja Pachaya Sankara or Salayatana Pasavedana, you know, uh, six senses, contact, feeling. And he would literally talk about those you know, a couple of times a day for two or three weeks, just on one little area. So by the end of that time, you're kind of you're hearing the words, you're taking them into the meditation, you're sitting with them and and uh by the end of those three or four years it's like okay i think i'm beginning to get the picture <laughs> but it's, it's very helpful just to take a small chunk of that whole process to can look at it to feel it out and and what's clear then to, to take that news out and what's unclear then say mm, well that belongs on the mystery in the mystery department at the moment but we'll get there we'll get there eventually so the um with respect to the um that process um of dependent origination and and the the five khandas and so on um the <coughs> the the aspect of uh consciousness uh and in in the five khandas uh, I was saying a few days ago, I feel it's most helpful to to not be thinking of it, thinking of it in the way that we use the in English word consciousness, more that the vinyana that's the uh, part of the the five khandas, the 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 nama rupa section, that's really the building blocks of experience. So like chaku vinyana, sort of vinyana, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, those are the individual sort of uh, neuronal firings of the in the visual cortex the auditory cortex the 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 taste and and smell and and uh, somatic cortex and so on that that's the most helpful way of understanding these are like the pixels of of that form the experience of of each of the the sensory fields and so it's kind of a different usage of the word consciousness than we generally have in in english where it's that sense of I I know I cognize I, I I'm aware of this particular thing I'm I'm awake I'm conscious so that not everybody would put it in the same way but I feel over the years I found actually that's 
the most the most helpful way of understanding that usage of the word vinyana. So again, it's not doctrinal, but I found that it makes much more sense to see that all of the five khandas are talking about the the aspects of the objective field. That clarifies things hopefully. Yes. And um I was just working with my own tendency to conceptualize everything <laughs> like in order to stay in the present moment when i see something now i just start to oh here's the whole theory about why this is and so on and there's a whole concept behind it and so i'm almost always two three seconds behind the present <laughs> moment and it's always like trying to catch up, but no, I start to conceptualize again. So, and I'm, I'm trying to and say, okay, this watch this conceptualization thing, and I don't know how to call it. Is this consciousness? Is this perception? <laughs> or how do you work with this tendency? Well, that, um, that there is a word um manyati a conceiving uh which it, it can it often refers to the sense of self but also uh that creating a conception like a a, a concept so manyati is the pali word m a n two ends with tildes on top nya manya ati manyati so that means to to conceptual conceptualize so like i was quoting that passage from the suttas um that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world that's lokamani so that's the from the same uh, the same verb root uh, a conceiver of the world the, the 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 mind is conceiving making the world into this particular form so that comes from that that root manyati conceiving and that um and also I was quoting that passage, yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So again, there's manyanti, well, that's the plural, whatever they conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So that uh, exactly what you're describing, the Pali word is uh, manyati, conceiving, conceptualizing. And it's like creating a whole... Uh, a kind of a, a layer of of uh, assumption around things, uh, a kind of a commentary about things, a, a kind of naming uh, and uh, elaborating uh, about the the present experience. So that's all in the field of manyati. Okay, thank you. Okay, time for one more. If there are any questions in the room? Yes, sir. and much appreciation to our microphone runner, doing hard work every day. Um, can you explain once again about the Metta Pavana method that you taught yesterday? Because um, I tried to do this this morning, but a bit confused. Um, when I have a feeling in my heart, should I go back to focus on the breath 
or should I only for uh, concentrate on the feeling that happened? Uh, well, it, I, I'm a great um, uh, advocate of people experimenting. And so um, my first thought will be a bit of both. That uh, to um, both be um, sustaining that the quality of well-wishing and then using the, the breath because the, the body's still breathing you don't have to you don't forget to breathe right right yes <laughs> but the body is still breathing on its own and so um by focusing at the heart center and then you can uh, there's a there's some sensation of the lungs expanding and contracting see. so just using that the the physical sensation of the breath uh entering and leaving and uh and also the 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 lungs expanding contracting just using that sensation uh, as a focal point and then um uh, as i was describing that uh, on the in breath uh, may i be my may i be well may i be at ease and on the out breath may all beings be at ease if it gets too complicated then make your own simplifications there's no kind of right way to do it but i, I encourage people to to try things out, to experiment, and see what brings a good result. It's yeah. kind of huge feeling for me, so I cannot like uh, go back to focus on on my breath. I mean, feeling in my heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever is the way that we we find it. Um, okay. The uh, it was interesting um, that the, I was teaching this many years ago. I was I was teaching this as a method, um, and. Uh, on a meditation retreat and um it had a variety of different effects on the people who are uh, retreating there were um uh, for one person uh it had a very very powerful sort of liberating effect she said she was uh, an older woman she'd lived in india she'd been a disciple of sri ramana maharshi at the arunachala mountain in uh, the south of india and she was saying oh this practice this is so powerful this is just this is this is just like being in the presence of Ma, of um sri ramana maharshi it's like i never thought i'd feel this ever again i think okay well kind of calm down <laughs> but it was a power kind of amazingly powerful and she was just so happy like this is amazing it's incredible i never thought i'd have that opportunity again so she was extremely happy for that and then uh, uh, the next interview somebody came in and said well i'm really angry with you you know this practice has completely ruined you know, completely ruined me and I thought, oh, interesting <laughs> the complete contrast to the other woman <laughs> who was having this sort of revisiting arunashram uh, ashram and so uh so i said well and she, but she had this kind of smile on her face as well like, i'm really angry with you but she was smiling so, oh, interesting and so it turned out, she explained, she said, I'm an administrator in a large psychiatric hospital. I have a, a very demanding life, and often the staff and the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the doctors are far more challenging than the patients. It's a difficult situation, but I've got really good samadhi. I've been meditating for years and years, so I have this whole big... Um, issues of issues of life of the hospital i come home uh, i sit down to meditate and it's all gone i can enter my space of samadhi 
like going up into my nice brightly lit attic with the skylights and the pure white walls and a white carpet and sky above mm. he said you've ruined that said, oh interesting she, she was also he's still smiling telling me the, the story i said so um she said i've discovered that there's chaos going on in the rest of the house underneath my beautiful attic <laughs> that uh this uh by bringing the attention down into the heart she um she said, "There's all kinds of chaos that the, the the kids are causing in the other in the rest of the house." Well, I've been in my little spiritual bubble in the attic, kind of the psychological attic, that there's all this unfinished business down here in the, the rest of the house that the, the the teenagers are causing mayhem, chaos in the house, and so she said, "So I'm really angry with you. You've ruined my meditation." You know, a big smile. Uh, but I, uh, but. I've told that story many times because it was also she was kind of grateful too yeah because she could see that she did have very good samadhi but she made it into a kind of capsule a sort of panic room you know where she could kind of close everything off and seal herself in this safe place and nothing could get in and she said well I was good at doing that it's good good solid walls <laughs> but there's all this unfinished business that I was missing that i wasn't aware of and that uh, needs to needs attending so i'm very upset with you ajan a big big smile and uh, and so it was a um, beginning of a a, a, good, a very good friendship and uh, and i was uh, it was interesting that just by changing the literally the physical location because she tended to focus on the the breath in her in her nostrils so literally bringing the attention out of the head down into the heart just that much seemingly had made this big difference in her uh, in her practice and so that um it wasn't what i was expecting or, or the other woman's experience of revisiting sri ramana i wasn't expecting that either <laughs> but uh i i do feel it's a very uh, a very potent and um direct way of cultivating metta and also um so you got the um it's a kind of non-conceptual non-verbal way of developing metta uh, and many kinds of metta practice can get lost in all the the words of remembering all the people you're spending kindness to and can be a bit chattery so it's the physical and non-verbal quality of that i i found quite helpful <laughs>